So Dr. Luke Meyer has actually already uh, introduced herself, but I'll just reiterate that it's a real pr privilege for me and I think for us to really um, have Dr. Luke Meyer talk to us about hepatitis and the setting of HIV, since she clearly spans both worlds and quite effectively, and so she's an incredible resource both within um, Zuckerberg Medical Center, UCSF, and uh, our community. And so we um, appreciate Dr. Luke Meyer's uh, update on uh, hepatitis issues in the setting of HIV. Thanks. So I know we are reaching that moment in the afternoon where everyone's like, their energy is going down. So just if everyone can like take a moment, take a deep, big deep breath, have a stretching moment. Um, we're in the home stretch. Um, uh, this is a half hour talk. Um, I'm happy to be interactive. We can ask questions during or at the end. And then we're going to finish it up strong with the talk about drugs. So that's always a great way to end and what we can do about drug use um, in our patients with Doug Bruce, who's going to give a great talk. So thanks for sticking with us uh, through this. So um, these are my disclosures. Um, I want to start with the most important part. Um, so if you fall asleep for the rest, that's okay. Um, so the hepatitis C guidelines, which are absolutely terrific. I'm not on the guideline panel, but I use these all the time. And I'm also an ID doctor, and we get really excited in ID when, like, every 10 years we get a new endocarditis um, update. And these are updated in real time, almost real time. Um, and so they're much more, I think, informative because they, they really let us know what's going on uh, in real time. There are also HBV guidelines. I want to talk about HBV today, um, and the AASLD, as well as the Europeans, um, have really excellent guidelines. Hep B is confusing, right? It makes Hep C look really simple and easy. And so sometimes it's helpful to look at a different set of guidelines. I don't usually make people's lives more difficult by sending them to something like the European guidelines, but sometimes for Hep B in particular, it's really helpful to get a different perspective. Um, Drug interactions um, for Hep C, I think your garden variety, whatever it is that you use, you know, Lexicomp or Hippocrates, I don't think are always as good as they need to be. I use the um, Liverpool Hep C drug interactions. I don't get any sponsorship from them. It's free, um, and you can have it on your phone, and they really they go to all the conferences and they update it. So I would just double check if you're not sure, um, and I wouldn't just trust your garden variety, whatever it is you're using, because uh, it's not always as up-to-date as it could be for Hepatitis C. Um, similar to the PrEP uh, warm line, there is a HCV consultation service that's through UCSF, um, and it's a warm line, not a hot line. You, I guess you can call in the middle of the night, but I don't think they will answer. Um, but just know that this is... <laughs> I don't know. You could try. But they're, um, they're really great, and they provide a lot of uh, uh, resources. So it's always good to know that there are people that you can reach out to to get some help, and it's staffed by some excellent um, clinicians and pharmacists, and it's free. Um, so you shouldn't feel like, it, like you're on your own. Patient education, um, this is only one example of many, many things that are out there. I think we've highlighted throughout the conference today that um, we don't always do the best job of counseling our patients, and sometimes we really think we do, and then our patients leave and they have no idea what we said, and I am no exception to that. So I've tried to really, in my practice, make sure that people leave with something in their hand that they can look at when they go home so that even if I explained it all perfectly, which I'm sure I, I don't, then whatever they heard, they can then have something else to look at so they can, you know, remember when they went home and it was all a blur. So I like Hep C Advocate. There's other great um, websites that are out there. So I'm going to take us through a case um, because uh, I'm a clinician and uh, this is how I like to think through things and use this as a mechanism to really go through some updates in viral hepatitis and I'm going to cover A, B, and C today um, through the mechanism of this case. 
Um, so this is a 26-year-old gentleman. He's got HIV. His hep C antibody is positive on intake labs. Um, he's new to you, um, but he's had care elsewhere, and he says he thinks this infection is new. He doesn't really remember anybody mentioning this. He thinks he was exposed through injection drug use or um, sexual contact with men, but he's not sure. He's still using speed um, through injection drug use, um, but generally he says he uses clean needles, um, uh, so he has access there. Um, so I want to ask the question, just taking a step back, because I just told you this is a 26-year-old guy with a new diagnosis of hep C, right? And all we ever see is that this is like a disease of the baby boomers. Um, so I want to know what is true about the U.S. hepatitis C epidemic. Um, is hep C the third highest cause of infectious disease death in the United States? Um, are new diagnoses still really concentrated in the baby boomer generation, and that's, that's where the bulk of our focus should be? Something strange happened with um, formatting there, but 30% of people living with hep C will spend time in jail um, or prison, or is the incidence of new hep C cases on the decline? And only one of these is correct. see what folks have to say. Okay. All right. So there's actually a pretty reasonable um, spread here. All right. Well, we're going to go through each of these. Okay. So the right answer is that 30% of people with hep C will spend time in jail or prison, and 20% of people who are incarcerated at any given point in time are um, have hepatitis C, one in five people in jail or prison. So if we're ever going to get ahead of this epidemic in the United States, and it's terrific that we have an elimination plan, we have to treat people in jail and in prison. And that's all I will say about it for, for, for now, but um, I think that we really need to make sure that our efforts are appropriately um, focused. So what about number one? Um, hep C is not the third leading cause, but it is the leading cause of infectious diseases death um, in the United States. Um, and, uh, you know, if you are at a cocktail party and are talking about this, A, maybe it should be a better cocktail party, I don't know. But, but B, I don't think that most people realize this. If you ask them, you know, what is killing people from an infectious disease point of view? Maybe now they'll say, like, measles, and, and they may not be so far off. But, but hepatitis C, this is all nationally notifiable infectious conditions, including HIV and tuberculosis. And part of that's going down because we've done a good job um, of reducing mortality in HIV and diseases like TB. But you look at hep C and it's incontrovertible that the deaths are going up. And that's really distressing because this is a preventable and treatable disease. Um, so we're clearly going in the wrong direction here. You see that this cuts off at 2013, but I think data suggests that this continues to go up and this is entirely avoidable. Well, what about globally? It's always helpful just to take the lens back a little bit and say, well, this is in the U.S. What does this look like in the rest of the world? And if you look at the blue line, this is HIV and AIDS deaths, which, which peaked around 2005 and are starting to come down. Again, a lot more work to do here. Um, TB deaths have come down. Malaria deaths have also come down. But if you look at viral hepatitis, those continue on an upward trajectory. And this is a combination of hepatitis B and hepatitis C. And again, that's not a surprise because by and large, global efforts to treat and even to diagnose hepatitis B and hepatitis C have really been abysmal. Um, but we have the tools to do this and I'm hoping there's going to be increased focus on these diseases and leveraging the success that we've had with HIV, where we know we can treat people who may have very limited access to, to care. They can be diagnosed. They can be treated. Um, and in hep B, right now, it's a lifelong disease, but hep C is not a lifelong disease. And outside of the U.S., it's very inexpensive to treat. So uh, there's really no excuse for us not diagnosing and treating people. Okay. 
Um, so what about the last two about new diagnoses are concentrated in the baby boomer generation and that incidence of new hepatitis C cases is on the decline and both of these are incorrect. So unfortunately, HCV incidence has been rising in the United States and this is based on reported acute hep C cases um, in the decade from 2004 to 14. And we know that acute hep C in general is way underreported, but these are the cases that we know about. So 13,000 cases were reported um, during this, uh, this decade with an increase um, uh, increased rate of 133%. And then extrapolating from this, they think that the actual number of cases was about 40,000 um, new cases. Um, and that the largest incidence um, uh, was occurring in those aged 18 to 29 and 30 to 39. So not the typical baby boomer age, which we know has been a, a highly impacted group, but they're not getting newly infected. The new infections, not surprisingly, are driven by the opioid ep epidemic. Um, injection drug use was reported in 75% of these cases. And unfortunately, this is uh, disproportionately impacting young and rural opiate users who may have even less access to um, medical care um, than people living in big cities. This is just showing this pictorially um, around the country. We've seen a lot of pictures uh, of, of HIV and poverty around the country, and this is looking at hepatitis C with the 200% increase in those um, red, uh, red areas. Um, and when you see a state like California, you, know, you can't really tell. I didn't break it down there, but again, much more um, in the rural areas than, than in the urban areas, which is not to say it doesn't occur in um, urban areas, but we, we've got a problem on our hands in terms of access to health care, in particular with these patients. So what does this mean um, for us? I think keep an eye out for um, a change that we're all hoping is going to happen with a shift to universal hepatitis C screening um, um, under consideration by a variety of, uh, of, uh, of bodies. Um, I think all of us being related to HIV look at this and say, well, duh, we learned this a long time ago with HIV that we're really bad at guessing and people are bad at identifying their risk. Um, but hep C um, uh, antibody testing is still restricted in terms of what gets paid for to certain groups, and we're bad at guessing, and I think it's time for us to change this so that we can get it covered by insurance and offer universal testing at least once to everybody and then more frequently to people who are at, at, at increased risk, and we need to just learn this lesson from HIV, and unfortunately, it's taken a little bit of time to get to that place. Okay. So this gentleman um, represents actually the current uh, U.S. epidemic, unfortunately, for hepatitis C. So he's 26. He's got new hep C antibody positive. He's otherwise pretty healthy. He's taking um, Bictegravir um, TAF FTC, which apparently was the flavor du jour today. Um, and uh, he's on a omeprazole. He lives in a single-room occupancy hotel. He's intermittently homeless. He does have access to clean needles and works through a needle exchange, um, which uh, makes an enormous difference in terms of forward HIV transmission risk. So these are some of the labs that we typically recommend that people get, which are familiar to all of you in the audience. Um, we have to confirm, first and foremost, that he does have hepatitis C. So you all know that an antibody test um, shows prior exposure to hepatitis C, occasionally can be false positive, but you need to confirm that someone is still viremic. So he is indeed still viremic. His viral load is 2.1 million, and he's a genotype 1B. Even though most of our regimens have moved towards pan-genotypic regimens, insurance still often requires that we get a genotype, and it's helpful to know in terms of past exposure, past infections, um, if someone has been reinfected. But um, I am still sending genotypes because insurance makes me get them. Um, his T cell count is 520. His HIV RNA is well suppressed. He doesn't have any renal dysfunction. His LFTs are borderline elevated at 45 and 41. He's got a normal albumin and platelets. His hep A antibody um, total uh, is negative. Um, 
his hep B surface antibody is negative, core antibody is positive, and surface antigen is negative, and his APRI score is 0.3, suggesting um, limited uh, fibrosis. Sorry, and I thought I uh, included the calculator there, but it's a APRI is the AST to platelet ratio. Um, I like it because it's free. Um, I work in a resource-constrained setting. It's not perfect. This is a little bit like a PSA test, right? Like if it's low, you feel better. If it's really high, you feel uncomfortable. In the middle, it's less helpful. Um, but this is a way to assess the fibrosis um, uh, that's present, and it's really important to stage fibrosis before you treat someone so that you know what their ongoing risk for hepatocellular carcinoma is. APRI and FIB4 aren't perfect tests at all, um, but they're a reasonable place to start, and we can talk about other tests that are available. Um, so hepatitis A, I wanted to um, start uh, with this before we really get into the meat of hepatitis C. So his hep A total antibody is negative. And as I'm sure is, comes as no surprise um, to, to you here that we're currently in our country experiencing outbreaks of hepatitis A in multiple states, um, and it's particularly focused on people who use drugs and or people who are experiencing um, homelessness. Um, this is a vaccine-preventable disease, um, as we all know, um, and routine vaccination should be offered to anyone who wants to be vaccinated um, against uh, hepatitis A, um, with, with a special focus on specific populations. So people who have chronic liver disease, um, who have clotting factors disorders, um, men who have sex with men, just a priori, injection or non-injection drug use, um, and homelessness. And I want to point out that the chronic liver disease includes hep B and hep C. Um, and then obviously if they are a healthcare worker who works with hepatitis um, A virus. The addition of injection uh, drug use and homelessness is new um, addition, and this the ACIP updated their um, guidelines, and then this came out, uh, this was released in October, and then the most recent guidelines reflect this, um, where uh, both homeless and injection drug users should be offered this, as well as MSM, um, because of the big outbreaks that we're seeing. The question comes up a lot, if you're seeing a marginalized population, depending on where you practice, should you bother to just test them to see if they're already protected, or should you just go ahead and vaccinate them? I think it really depends on what resources you have available, but if phlebotomy and testing and having someone come back is just not possible, many of us have just been providing hepatitis A vaccination um, to individuals um, and not, and not uh, uh, going ahead and confirming whether or not they're already um, uh, immune, uh, just given the high prevalence, particularly in a lot of a homeless population. So if you're in an outbreak setting, um, I think that it's very reasonable to go ahead and, and do this. Um, and I'm sure in San Diego, Connie, is that what you guys have done? Just gone ahead and vaccinated because it's been such, a, such an issue. Oh, drug use, it means other kinds of drug use. So it should not be limited. So snorting meth, smoking it, um, so people who are using substances that are, not, uh, that are not through injection drug use. So, you know, does smoking pot fall into that category? I don't think that that's what they intended with these guidelines, but it's a good, it's a good point to clarify that. I think they mean things like smoking heroin, snorting, snorting methamphetamine or cocaine or crack. Um, okay. So um, I want to then move on. This gentleman, you're going to offer him a hepatitis A vaccine because he has hepatitis uh, C. He also has HIV, and we're supposed to vaccinate our patients with HIV, as we're well aware. I want to talk for just a minute about hepatitis um, uh, serologies because this is where the wheels start to fall off the bus sometimes um, uh, for many of us. So he's surface antibody negative, core antibody positive, surface antigen negative. Okay. So, oh, where did my... Uh, I had an ARS there, and I think it went away. Anyway, it's okay. Um, so the question is, what does this mean? Um, so uh, when you have, uh, when you just taking a step back, 
what kind of screening should we be doing for, for uh, individuals for hepatitis B? So hep B screening is recommended for all pregnant women, people needing immunosuppressive therapy, and groups at elevated risk. And they recommend that you screen both for surface antigen, and uh, they now call it anti-surface antibody, but for most of us, we just call that surface antibody. Um, it feels like too many words in there. And then for individuals um, who uh, you've tested and are, uh, don't have immunity, then you're supposed to vaccinate them all. Um, so if they're surface antibody negative, go ahead and vaccinate them. So because it's so confusing, um, core antibody testing is not recommended, not because it's confusing, but because it's not indicated for most people, except, okay, people with HIV infection or planning hepatitis C treatment, cancer therapy, or other immunosuppressive therapy. And the reason for this is because core antibody tells you that someone has been previously been exposed for the most part. That's what it tells you, that someone still has hepatitis B that's residing in the body. For most people, that makes no difference at all. But if you immunosuppress them, then the hepatitis B can come back. So to save you this trouble, if you have an otherwise healthy population that you're screening for hepatitis B, you don't need to send the core antibody positivity. If you're going to treat them for hepatitis C or they have HIV or cancer or something else, you do need to send that. Um, so in this case, you have multiple reasons to send the core antibody. And now you need to sort out what it means because he has isolated core antibody positivity. So does this piece make sense before I go on to, to the next part? Okay. Um, yes. Um, so prep. So if you're planning prep, I. <laughs> thank you, Hyman. No, um, if you're planning prep, I would get a core antibody because I like to understand that. Um, but I think that if you're surface antibody positive, um, it's not going to change how you handle PrEP for them. Um, but I think in PrEP, the scenario is that you're really going to want a surface antigen as well. Yeah. So, um, and you'd be getting surface antigen and surface antibody. I, I, could, I could take or leave the core antibody. I probably would get it. But we're not worried about people being reactivating due to coming on and off PrEP. It's more of a concern that they have a surface antigen and that you're partially treating, and then they're at risk of a flare. So, does that answer your question? Okay, so this gentleman has isolated core antibody positivity, and there's four possible scenarios that this could represent, right? What you're always taught is that this is the window period, right? Transitioning from surface antigen positive, you lose that, and then someone's gaining surface antibody positivity, and they're in that window period. This is in the textbook correct answer, and in real life, that's almost never what you're seeing, because we're almost never seeing people who are having resolution of their acute hepatitis B. It occurs, it's, it's a real thing, but in, in your typical practice, this is not what you're seeing. More commonly, you, this is waned immunity, right? Someone used to be surface antibody positive. Um, they have what we call resolved infection, meaning it's still in the liver. It's still there. Hep B is a lifelong infection. It just goes into a latent controlled phase, um, and uh, uh, the surface antibody has winged. But you can't tell. You don't know if they've had prior surface antibody positivity. There's this entity called occult uh, hepatitis B where they're, surface, uh, where they're hep B DNA positive, usually at a very low level, and they're surface antigen negative. You only know that if you check them. The clinical consequences of this are unclear. Um, these are not generally individuals who go on to develop lots of cirrhosis, but their viral load levels can go up. Um, and then it could be a false positive. The older um, assays that we had were more likely to yield a false positive, um, but there isn't a great test for this. But just as a reminder, for the first three, um, this is hep B remains in the liver, and they remain at risk for reactivation. The fourth, you can't prove if that's the case, so we usually assume that it's one of the, the first three. 
Um, and I'm going to preempt the question. There was a f some French studies where they thought they could prove how they were false positives, and they just kept repeating the test. I don't, I don't recommend that. And I'm not anti-French. I feel like I keep making these French comments, but I just want to bring that up. So I'm happy to talk to anyone more about that. Um, okay. So AASLD finally weighed in on, I think, a really sticky question, um, which is, well, what do you do for people who are anti-core antibody positive only, right? Just like this gentleman. Do you vaccinate them or do you not vaccinate them? And I'm glad that they weighed in because I think this is an area that's caused like a lot of headaches. And I'm not sure that there's a right answer, but I think having guidance is very useful. So, um, and I'm happy to talk about this further uh, with anyone who wants to debate this. Um, but what they say is if you're from a low end, the patient is from a low endemicity area and has no risk factors for hep B um, infection, right? So like, it, you know, a straight guy living in Nebraska, right? And you just tested him because you tested him. Deliver a full hep B vaccination series and just move on. You don't know why he was core antibody positive, but maybe, you know, who knows? So they're just assuming that that was not a prior resolved infection. If their hep B risk factors are present, um, don't vaccinate um, unless they have HIV infection or are immunocompromised, okay? Um, so if they come from a highly endemic setting or they have other risk factors, you say this is probably um, resolved infection unless they have HIV and then just go ahead um, and vaccinate them. So hopefully that helps provide some guidance because I know that I get a lot of questions about what to do for vaccination for these individuals. And I would also say when in doubt, just vaccinate them because it's not gonna hurt the patient. You can get access to this and, and worst case scenario, you vaccinated somebody who didn't need it, um, but best case scenario, you prevented a new um, infection in someone. Um, so we have a new hepatitis B vaccine, which um, is something to add to our armamentarium, which may change some of your thinking around this. It's called Heplisav. Um, and it's adjuvanted, which means that it has a, a protein adjuvant in, to, in it that causes a more robust immune response, and it also makes your arm hurt a little bit more. So just be aware of that. Um, it's two doses, so zero and four weeks, which is very exciting. And I want to just tell you that's in comparison to the standard hepatitis B series, zero, one, and six months, or if you give it as twin ricks, which is zero, one, six months, or there's a different regimen um, that, that you can give for that. But I don't know about you, but that six months is usually when I forget, they forget, I never see them again, who knows? But being able to do this in zero and four weeks really, I think, improves the ability to um, complete this. What we do know about Heplosav is that they're improved immunogenicity in older patients and those with diabetes. And those are populations that we know with a standard three drug, three vaccine regimen, we often don't get the, the response that we wanna see in them. And this is where Heplosav has been more um, effective. What's the downside? We see more injection site reactions, um, and it looks like it's a little bit more pricey, but not like a fold higher pricey. So uh, I think that in, in most cases, price is not gonna be the issue um, there. Well, here we are talking about HIV. What do we know about um, HIV with Heplosav? And the answer is nothing. Um, but I will tell you, um, oh, sorry. Um, we have no data for initial vaccination or revaccination in non-responders. So it doesn't mean that it won't work and it's not unsafe in people who have HIV. We just don't know. The package insert just says two doses for everybody, right? Like just take two doses. There was a CKD study, however, that's also mentioned um, in the package insert that looks at the response after two versus three doses. And basically what it shows, and these are individuals who either are already on dialysis or have um, pretty, let me see if I can figure out how to use this, or pretty um, uh, advanced uh, kidney disease, and they show that the response at week 12 um, is lower after getting two shots versus um, at week 24 where it goes up to um, 90%. Um, and the blue is uh, the Heplosav, um, and this is comparing it to standard hepatitis B vaccination. 
It's a little tricky to interpret in that we know adjuvanted vaccines like Heplosab, the response rate goes up over time. Even though nothing's happening here, you can see that the antibody titers are going up. Nonetheless, this suggests that in individuals who have some pre-existing immunocompromise, and in this situation, it's chronic kidney disease, they benefited from three shots versus two. And we know it's hard to get an immune response in people who have uh, uh, kidney dysfunction. They didn't change the package insert based on this, and I think most of us in HIV practice have not moved to giving three doses to our patients, but the truth is we really don't know what the right thing to do is. And I know, Connie, you mentioned that there was a lot of debate on this around the guidelines, but sometimes it's good to have a tool that we think is going to work very well and let the data catch up to it. I'd certainly prefer that to the, to the converse, which is not having the tool and talking about whether or not it would work. Um, there's a study that's coming up that's going to look at this, Heplosav, two versus three doses in non-responders, and then three doses potentially in vaccine-naive um, individuals. We certainly need more information in HIV-positive patients, but I would not not give this. Um, and most folks that I've talked to are giving whatever vaccine that they have um, available in their environment. Some people don't have any access to Heplosav. Some people are only giving Heplosav. So I'll be curious to hear what your, uh, what your practice is. Um, Okay, so I want to then shift back to um, treating hepatitis C in the setting of hepatitis uh, B. So what's the big deal with this? We looked for hepatitis B in this gentleman because he had HIV, but also because he had hepatitis C. We care about it because we don't want people to have get a vaccine-preventable disease that could make the liver worse, but we also know that there's this concern um, about hepatitis B reactivation because we know that hepatitis B, once you've been infected, stays in the liver, and if you get a lot of immunosuppression, as Peter mentioned earlier this morning, you could see um, a, a bump in transaminases, and in the worst-case scenario, you can see people get quite sick from a flare. So what do we do for individuals who have evidence um, of hepatitis B prior exposure? How should we think this through? So these are the AASLD um, guidelines um, that recommend testing all um, antibody, uh, all patients for surface antigen um, positivity. Um, uh, and uh, this is the this is the I think this is written in the reverse way. Um, I just am noticing that that's written in the reverse, but. Um, we should uh, test all hep, B, hep C positive patients for surface antigen uh, positivity and treat their hepatitis B if viremic. I'm sorry, that switched around. And the eligibility for their hep B treatment is the same um, as, as for patients who are hep B uh, mono-infected, right? So you just say if they're surface antigen positive, test their hep B uh, DNA, and then use the AASLD guidelines to decide um, whether or not um, um, to treat them. So here they are, they're surface antigen positive. If they meet criteria, you go ahead and initiate antiviral therapy. If they don't meet criteria for hep B treatment, then monitor their DNA levels along with an AST-ALT um, uh, along the way, and for three months after completion of hep C therapy. I will say that the Europeans are a little bit more um, uh, conservative than this, and they say, look, if they're surface antigen positive, just consider going ahead and treating them no matter what. Okay, I would say with our HIV positive patients, this is a bit of a moot point because everybody should already be on one, if not two, um, medications. But many of you may treat people who are mono-infected with hepatitis C uh, as well. But um, if they're already on uh, TDF, uh, FTC, or TAF, FTC, then, then you're fine here. But what about gentlemen who fall into the category like the one we have in front of us? Surface antigen negative, but core antibody positive. Um, and again, this is a group that I think people became very worked up with, uh, worked up about because of an FDA black box warning suggesting that there was reactivation in the setting of treating people um, with these DAA agents. Um, the AASLD uh, recommendations are to monitor the ALT at baseline, end of therapy, and during follow-up, 
And if transaminase levels go up or fail to normalize, then test for hep B DNA and hep B surface antigen. And I think the important thing to remember with this is that if you do see LFTs go up during hepatitis C therapy, that don't just blame the hepatitis C medication, um, that it could be something else that's going on. Usually these medications do not cause transaminitis. Okay, I just wanna bring up that there was a Lancet meta-analysis um, that suggests that these are probably overly conservative guidelines. And they looked at reactivation risk and these excluded individuals with HIV, um, again, because many of them are on hep B active therapy. And they found that surface antigen positive patients, 24% of them during therapy had their DNA go up, 9% of them had hepatitis. Okay, this is the group we should pay attention to and follow some sort of guidance around whether or not we should treat them, and if we don't treat them, we should monitor them closely. But people who had resolved infection, in other words, they were only core antibody positive, 1.5% um, had their DNA go up, and none of them had clinical hepatitis. So this suggests to me that we were appropriately concerned about the black box warning, but that we don't need to go crazy about this. And then in people who are isolated core antibody positive, with or without surface antibody positivity, we really don't need to worry that much about them um, at all, and that the ASLD guidelines may be too conservative. Okay, I just added this in because Peter brought this up um, this morning, and what the risk of hep B reactivation is in core antibody uh, positive people, it really is on along a trajectory, um, and it depends on what the agents you give are, and this is a nice um, reference from uh, 2016. So high-dose steroids, rituximab, TNF-alpha blockers, and chemotherapy are really at the high end um, there, and that's how we'd like to think of them. I'm gonna skip over this in the interest of time, um, but if you do need to go ahead and prophylax people who are on a biologic like rituxan, which is one of the bad actors, and tecavir or tenofovir is preferred over lamivudine only. Again, in our HIV-positive patients, this is a bit of a moot point. Okay. Um, I am just going to pay attention to time, and I might skip over a couple of um, slides here, um, but I wanted to remind you um, what, the, what the prescribing landscape looks like um, in California, um, since many of you in this room are from California, but some of you uh, may not be. This is a reminder that Medi-Cal changed our guidelines and uh, now adheres to the AASLD IDSA guidelines to treat everyone regardless of the extent of fibrosis if they are not dying of a non-hepatitis C cause. We took a long time to get to this place. The data really supports it. And luckily, at least in California, Medi-Cal is aligned with that. We have four different medications um, that we can give, and I did include the uh, brand names because it is so uh, complicated and many people are much more familiar with the brand names than they are with the, uh, with the uh, uh, tongue-twisting uh, generic names. So the four different uh, options that we have um, are Elbisphir Grisoprevir, which is Zepatir. It is non-pangenotypic, genotypes one and four. It's given for 12 weeks, but you have to extend it in genotype 1As if there is evidence of resistance. So you are supposed to test them for um, resistance uh, before you treat them and then change uh, the therapy. Glucaprevir Prebrentisphere, which is Maverit, is pangenotypic, um, and it's eight weeks of therapy. Um, but we have new data that came out of um, AASLD this year suggesting that not only can you give eight weeks in non-serotic patients, but now you can give eight weeks in serotic patients. Previously, it was 12 weeks of therapy that was recommended. The only group for whom this doesn't apply is genotype three patients, only because we don't have the data yet. Um, but we hope to have that data um, uh, coming soon um, from a study that's ongoing. Um, but that's good news. Shorter is, is uh, 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 certainly nicer for our patients. Then we have cefospivir lidiposphere, which is known as Harvoni, genotypes 1 and 4, 12 weeks. You can shorten therapy if they have a low viral load, so less than 6 million, are not black, and don't have HIV. 
Uh, Cefospivir valpatosphere is the souped-up version of Harvoni. It's called Epclusa. It's pangenotypic. It's 12 weeks. You cannot shorten therapy. Um, they, the phase two data didn't support this. Um, so you, just to keep it simple, Epclusa is 12 weeks for everyone. Some, some studies are uh, looking into the shorter uh, courses of therapy and acute hepatitis C, uh, but that's not uh, where we are now. Um, just to remind you that in the rest of the United States, um, many insurances are not well aligned um, with the evidence-based guidelines from the AASLD, IDSA, so they still have fibrosis restrictions or sobriety restrictions, um, and we're making some progress, um, but I think we still have a ways to go, and I think as part of the healthcare community, we just have to continue to say that it's not acceptable to have uh, insurance uh, guidelines that are wildly um, non-evidence-based, um, uh, and a lot of this is based on stigma. One of the good updates that I think I can share is that uh, prices have really been dropping. Um, so again, if your same cocktail party, if things are really getting crazy and someone brings up the $1,000 a pill, uh, $1,000 a day pill, you can say that's no longer the case. Um, and for some reason, uh, hepatitis has really been labeled with this, you know, it's the most expensive therapy, and it's really not the most expensive therapy, and it certainly is no longer the most expensive therapy. We've seen prices come all the way down to, uh, Maverick is now uh, for eight weeks, $26,000, and Zepatir um, for 12 weeks has come down to $21,000, um, which is a 60% reduction. These are not cheap drugs, um, but they're cost-effective. Um, we have good data to support that, and when you compare this to things like the biologics, these are by no means what is uh, driving healthcare costs. Um, so when you hear people say that, though, I think we have to educate them and sort of re-educate them that we should not use price um, uh, as a reason uh, n uh, to not treat people. The other thing is with a lot of price changes that have occurred, formularies have really shifted around. When I gave this talk um, last year, I left out two, two classes of drugs because really people weren't giving them anymore. They weren't pangenotypic. But now we've seen two of those uh, non-pangenotypic drugs really come back into play because they're cheap. Um, and so we're seeing the formularies get shaken up. I'll take cheap and I'll take more options, but it just makes life a little bit more complicated. Okay. Um, so we have great options for previously harder to treat patients. We have uh, options for renal failure patients, people with cirrhosis, including decompensated disease, active substance use or alcohol use disorder, um, and then obviously people living with HIV and hepatitis C uh, co-infection who have equivalent outcomes. I'm just going to give you the one-minute drug-drug interaction um, for HIV, hep C. Um, well, you know, it can be done, I know, even in someone who speaks slowly, of which I am not. So this is I cut and pasted directly from the University of Liverpool um, website, but I cut out the drugs that we don't um, use and put this together. So Elbosphere, Grisopavir, this is Zepatir. It's not compatible with the PIs or Elvitegravir, Cobacistat. So you just have to remember that, that category when, when you're looking this up. Glucaprevir preventosphere, which is Maverick, is also not compatible with the PIs, um, but you can give with Elvitegravir and Cobacistat. Um, Cefospivir valpatosphere and Cefospivir lodiposphere are compatible with really most of the antiretroviral therapies, but they're not compatible with the PPIs. Remember, I told you this gentleman has GERD and is on omeprazole. Um, and then the only agent that's compatible with the Favarins um, is Cefospivir lodiposphere, which is uh, Harvoni. We don't have a lot of folks who are still on this, but the take-home message is, is that there's a hep C therapy for almost every ART regimen, so that should no longer be the reason that we're not um, treating people, and we have really, really good resources. Okay. 
hepatitis C in pregnancy, and I promise I'm almost done, um, but I think this is one of the most exciting presentations that came out of uh, CROI this year, um, was talking about a phase one um, study treating uh, uh, women in pregnancy, and why does this matter so much? Well, that's because we're seeing really rising rates of hepatitis C in women of childbearing age and doubling in pregnant women um, even over the last uh, five years. AESLD and IDSA uh, recommend universal testing of uh, pregnant women. EGHOG does not yet, but I think we need to continue to work. I see a lot of shaking heads and angry faces, so I, I agree with that. Um, we know that it's more cost-effective than risk-based screening, and there was a really nice paper um, that came out just this year in CID um, talking about the women that we will catch um, and that this is really a cost-effective strategy. The phase one data that I was referring to was looking at cefospivir lidiposphere given um, in the late second trimester, this was a small study. I think this is more a proof of concept. They gave eight women uh, 12 weeks of sofosbuvir lidiposphere and got 100% SVR12. There were no adverse fetal events. Um, obviously, this is not pangenotypic. It was only for genotypes one and four, and that actually led to them screening out a lot of patients who were geno two and uh, two and three. 170 uh, viremic women were identified who were pregnant during the two years. Many of them didn't want to participate, but it just tells you at one center they had a lot of pregnant women with hepatitis C. Um, so I think we need more data, um, but it really does open the door to more research. Um, and in the right population, if your patient really, really wants to be treated during pregnancy, I would have that discussion with her. So um, I just want to end um, with talking about acute hepatitis C. Um, we're going to skip that one. Um, this gentleman uh, gets treated and cured, but he gets reinfected. Um, so the rates of uh, reinfection are, um, uh, of spontaneous clearance in the setting of acute hepatitis C are low. We were reminded of this at Croy again this year, about 12% spontaneous clearance. Um, so that's not that high. Um, and just a reminder that we are used to thinking about waiting three to six months, but um, there are really, I think, good data from Europe that suggest if you have a two-log drop at week four, this predicts 96% of individuals who clear. So you can consider monitoring for spontaneous clearance at one month um, rather than three to six months. And this is the European um, uh, uh, flow sheet for this, saying that if you've gone down two-log reduction in viral load, um, then you can uh, go ahead and wait and see if they clear. But if they haven't dropped, then go ahead and consider offering them therapy. Or you're in some um, selected patients, you can consider just treating them right away. Um, and particularly for people who have a risk of forward transmission, so they're actively um, injecting drugs or have lots and lots of sexual partners, and that's how they got infected. Um, if they already have cirrhosis and you're worried about their risk of clinical complications, or if you think this is really your moment and you don't know where they're going to be in six months from now, um, you want to take uh, advantage of this time. It's generally the same regimen as for chronic hepatitis um, C. Uh, uh, there are some tre treatment shortening um, uh, studies that are ongoing, um, and this question comes up all the time, and I'm happy to discuss the data, but there's really no indication for hepatitis C PEP. Um, so this comes up if people have needle sticks, and the reason for that is that we can really universally treat people and cure them, um, and we haven't had good studies to support the use of PEP. Um, there are always exceptions to that, but in general, we don't need to give PEP. Remember to screen people for um, uh, fibrosis, and if they're F3 or F4, they need to get HCC screening um, for life for right now, um, even if they get cured, even though we know that cirrhosis can regress. Um, so don't do keep doing fiber scans and things like that. If, uh, uh, if it makes you feel better and the patient feel better, that's fine, but it shouldn't be the reason for you to stop um, screening them for HCC. So I'm going to end there. I'm sorry that I went over time, um, but, uh, and I don't know if I have time for questions. I do, okay. So 
that was really incredible, and you do have time for questions, okay. and so you're not let off the hook. Um, and um, I guess there's the first question is I still don't understand that why we should be vaccinating someone who may be hepatitis B core antibody positive. Um, the, the, maybe distinguish between exposure and infection. If you're core antibody positive, um, if it could be a false positive, so it depends on where you are coming from, then there's another theory that if it's an anamnestic response, right, and so your surface antibody waned, would you really be able to, you might be able to boost your immune response should you be in a reactivation um, situation, but that one is theoretical. And I think the issue really is we can't prove if that core antibody is a false positive um, or a true anamnestic response. So we, we do choose to vaccinate those individuals if they meet the categories that I, that I went through. And uh, when do you stop hepatitis B? Uh, treatment yeah. uh, in, in yeah. ver these various settings. So if you're giving someone um, therapy, uh, they, they're not surface antigen positive, right? They're only core antibody positive, and you're giving this for prophylaxis against reactivation. The recommendation is that you treat them for three to six months after immunosuppression has stopped. So with DAAs, if you're treating them for their hep C therapy, you would treat them for three months after they've stopped their hep C therapy. If they're on a biologic agent, they may be on that therapy for life, but if you reverse it or their chemotherapy stops, you should go on for three to six months afterwards, and then you can consider stopping. And the next question is also, again, about isolated core antibody and risk for hepatitis B. So someone has ongoing risk for acquisition of hepatitis. You're not, you're not trying to suppress infection that may be reoccurring right. and someone already infected, but they have risk for new infection. Right. Um, Will the vaccine help convert the antibody to positive, surface antibody to positive, so that they would also, their risk for new infection may go down? That's what we, that's what we hope. Yeah. Okay. So, um, are there any other questions? Uh, we've got time. For, yes. Is there such thing as a hepatitis B cure? If you ever want to hear like a very heated and maybe boring debate, you talk to a bunch of HIV and Hep B doctors. Like, can we really cure HIV and hepatitis uh, hepatitis B, or can we only get a functional cure? What I would say is that in in nature we can get a functional cure of hepatitis B, which is that the immune system controls it, but hep B is there in the liver, and it doesn't cause a problem, and it's controlled. And that's good enough to reduce your risk of cirrhosis, and everybody's happy. Can you get a sterilizing cure? And that's what there's a lot of on Joe's just shaking his head. No, we don't know the answer to that. A lot of people are spending a lot of money to see if we can remove the CCC DNA in the liver and do better than nature and say, yeah, that there is no hepatitis B in your body. Um, I don't know if that's going to be achievable, but what I'll say is I don't know that we need that. I think what we really need is to shift more people from chronic hepatitis B into immune-controlled hepatitis B because chronic active hep B is what leads to the morbidity and the cirrhosis and the liver cancer. Once it's under control, which is what most people, you know, 80% of people who are infected get immunologic control, that's plenty good for them. They're not infectious to other people and they don't develop complications. So. No, they once they're surface antibody positive, they do not need uh, therapy anymore. It's immu immunologically controlled. Okay. Yeah. I, I think the misperception is that if you get hepatitis B and you develop surface antibody, you're not cured. Right. You, you have still have hepatitis B because if you get rituximab or something else, you, you right. can reactivate. So, but the goal is to 
create more people like that. Yeah. By, and there are drugs that, that may do that. Yeah, yeah. And, and some people think they can get a sterilizing cure with some very fancy drugs, and I don't know if that's going to work. So in non-HIV-infected patients, who are being treated for hepatitis B, if they get loss of surface antigen and they gain a surface antibody, you can stop their therapy. I think the corollary is, well, gosh, what if I wanted to put someone on dolotegravir rilpivirin, right, and they had hepatitis B in the past and they've got HIV, I'd really want to make sure that they were probably surface antibody positive um, before I would consider removing their hep B active uh, uh, ART. But I guess the corollary is that someone says to you, well, I've already been cured of hepatitis B because I took treatment, you know, whatever, and they meet a new indication for risks for reactivation, you should not believe they were cured. You should, you may want to, you know, they go on an immunobiologic. Well, I think there is, there is no such thing that's right. convincing that, that, that they so can be cured. So it's a matter of education of, our patient, of ourselves and our patients that there is no such thing as a real cure. Even though they, people come and say, oh, I had hepatitis B and I was cured. I was cleared it. I was treated for six months or six years or whatever. And I don't need it now three years later, even though you're saying I'm, you know, maybe at risk. That's the bottom line. And part of this is our fault because we use such bad nomenclature. Yes. And so now even like ASLD says resolved infection, <clears throat> yeah. I think that's super misleading. Yeah. I think we should call it latent or something else because resolve makes it sound like I had a staph infection and it's gone. Like it really is gone. Resolved is not the right word, but that's the word they're, they're using. Words do matter. <laughs> okay, are there any other questions then? Oh, thank you. Oh, yes, one question. Um, so could you repeat the, the question? Yeah, the question is, I feel like super, I'm super old school. No, okay. I can take it off here. Um, so the question is, can you use Maverick in child's B and C infection? And the point being raised there is that Maverick contains a hepatitis C protease inhibitor, and we know that those levels go up um, in uh, in child C and B disease. So definitely not in decompensated cirrhosis, um, and that includes child's B patients. So the package insert says no. Um, we've been pushed sometimes in bees to use it if we absolutely have to due to whatever other reasons, but really in general you want to restrict it to child's A. The good news is, is that Epclusa, as you know, can be used in B and C, so decompensated cirrhotics, either current or previous decompensated cirrhotics. And to your point there, this question comes up a lot, which is, if you once were decompensated, should you always be counted as decompensated? There is, you know, recompensated disease. I don't think the hepatologists like to see that, but we all know what that is, right? Like you've seen people like that. They used to have great big excites, and then they stopped drinking and they're better. I usually am conservative and consider if you've ever been decompensated that I'd like to treat you as if you are decompensated and pick an agent that would be safer like Epclusa in that setting. Again, recognizing that sometimes that's just not possible. The same thing goes with, uh, we didn't talk about this, but Vasevi, which is the three-drug therapy for retreatment, which also has a hep C protease inhibitor that's really not supposed to be given in decompensated disease, although there was a great presentation at AASLD from the VA, and I used to work at the VA, so I'm not being um, cruel here, where they just were like, oh, well, we look, turns out we gave it in a, you know, less about 10% of the people had a history, and they did fine. So it, it, there is a little bit of wiggle room there, but you need to be very, very cautious, I think. Great. Well, thank you very much um, for a really great talk. So, Annie, you're, you're going to introduce the All right. So, um